You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Many of the conversations that we all have about the gender gap at work, whether we're talking about pay specifically or talking about getting more women into the C-suite, into leadership positions, have to do with what we as women can do to close that gap. But as I recently read from my guest today, women talking amongst ourselves is half a conversation, which can solve at best 50% of the problem. In other words, in order to reach the sort of parity that we're looking for, we need men leaning in too. Joanne Lipman is with me. Joanne is the author of the new book you've been hearing all about. It's called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and What Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Of course, you know Joanne from her many jobs. She was the editor-in-chief of USA Today, the chief content officer at Gannett, the first woman to be a page one editor of the Wall Street Journal. It's really nice to have you. Oh, thanks for having me, Jane. Great to be here. It's really nice to have you. I should mention Joanne is with us on Skype. She is, although you're not so far away today, you're only about 30 blocks uptown. That's right. That's right. We're in the neighborhood almost. Exactly. So tell me why this book and why right now? Yeah, so I've actually been working on That's What She Said for a little over three years And the reason I started the book, it actually grew out of an article that I wrote a little over three years ago for the Wall Street Journal um, for the very reason that you said at the top of the show, which is, you know, women talk amongst ourselves all the time about the issues that we face at work. And there are so many issues that are common to all of us, feeling marginalized, um, you know, not as respected as the man in the next cubicle, um, underpaid, overlooked. And we talk about these issues all the time. We have books and conferences where we talk to each other, but we haven't been talking to men. And, you know, if we're going to solve the problem, we need the men to come into the room by talking amongst ourselves. First of all, these are great conversations that women have with each other. And I think they're fantastic. But there are two unfortunate side effects um, that are completely unintended. And one is that we end up demonizing perfectly good guys, like really good guys who would want to be on our side. And certainly we don't mean to do so, but having this conversation amongst ourselves can seem like we're demonizing them. And then the second piece of this is men are sometimes pretty clueless about the issues that we face. And in fact, Catalyst, um, which you know is the nonprofit that looks at working women, Mm -hmm. did a survey of, of senior executive men to say what might be a barrier to you um, championing women in the workplace. And it fascinating to me, it was 51% said lack of awareness of exactly what those issues are. 
I mean, that's kind of amazing to me, especially now with Me Too all over the place. The survey was done before Me Too, but still 51% is a pretty high percentage. It It is. Now, the book isn't a man-shaming sort of a book, right? I mean, you're... Definitely you're, not. You're not <laughs> taking men to the woodshed. So how are you using this to... I guess, get them into the conversation. Right. So in the research for That's What She Said, I spent these three years crisscrossing the country and the world. And I went in search of men, particularly, you know, male executives who were trying actively to close the gender gap. And I talked to them. I tell their stories. Um, there's a lot of stories and anecdotes in the book. It's very readable, backed by tons of data. But I really wanted to tell stories of men who were trying to close the gap and learn from them what are missteps, but also what are tactics that they have found that have worked for them, that have actually moved the needle. And so it really is, I say right up front in the book, there will be no man bashing in this book. And, you know, the idea is to say, okay, here are some problems, challenges that women face in the workplace. Here's some men who have become aware of what the issues are. And, and by the way, awareness is first and foremost, the single most important thing that we, we can bring to the party here, because once we are aware of what the issues are, then we can come up with practical real life steps that we can take to close the gap. And that's what I did with talking to these men. So let's talk about those practical real life steps, because I'd love to empower our listeners so that they can understand what these steps are and how to get their employers, their companies to come to the table. The first one is one that doesn't work. I mean, you document that diversity training actually makes the gender gap worse. So can we discuss that and then move to solutions that do? Sure, sure. So traditional diversity training, which grew out of, um, frankly, legal actions and lawsuits uh, back in the 70s, um, was a reaction to, you know, legal compliance. And that traditional training, there was a Harvard professor who looked at 30 years worth of diversity training at more than 700 companies. And he found that for women, as well as for African-American men and women, their position, they would have made more progress had there been no training whatsoever. And there were a variety of reasons for this. But one of the reasons was that the men who were primarily in the training felt like it was punishment and they were resentful and they felt like they were the ones who were being singled out. And and so, you know, since then, uh, we have moved on there's still billions of dollars being spent on traditional diversity training, but more and more now is being spent on what we call unconscious bias training and unconscious bias training. The idea there is we're not telling, not trying to punish you. We're trying to tell you that all of us, men, women, underrepresented uh, minority groups, we all have these biases that are buried so deeply inside of us that we don't even know that they exist. So, the idea there is if we can recognize what the biases are, we can take steps to counteract them. And the idea behind the training is, well, since we're not blaming you because it's not your fault, <laughs> right? We're, we're trying to take the blame out right. of it. Yeah. Does that work? Um, you know, the, the issue with the, the, for what it is, it's fine, right? It does help you understand unconscious bias and it helps you 
have awareness. The problem I have with the training is training alone is not enough. And the conclusion that I really come to with that's what she said is the understanding and the ownership of diversity cannot be outsourced to your HR department and it cannot be fixed in a couple of hours of diversity or unconscious bias training. It, the ownership must belong with the CEO and the CFO. And this is really important, that CFO, the chief financial officer, because every piece of research shows you that adding women to work groups makes you more financially successful. Um, you know, boards that have more women on them, those companies are more successful than, than companies with the fewest women on their boards. Female chief financial officers make better um, acquisitions. Uh, banks run by women are less likely to fail during a crisis. Every piece of research will show you this. You know, mixed groups make better and more creative decisions. But too often what I've seen in companies is, you know, the CEO will, will sort of give it lip service and say, yes, we really care about diversity. But when you look at their actions, they're not walking the walk. And they're sort of saying that's something, that's a touchy-feely thing that HR can do. And that will never work unless the leadership really believes it and owns it. All right. So we know what doesn't work. What what actually does in terms of moving the needle to to get more parity in in pay, to get more parity on boards, to get more men to want to be participatory in this endeavor to equalize what's going on on the table? Right. So there are steps that any one of us can take, men or women, but, uh, but these are steps that I gleaned from talking to men. So for example, the research shows us that women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are. And that really harms their professional, um, career. And so, uh, men who become aware of that can, or women can do something about it. But one of the uh, the men who I spoke to for that's what she said is Glenn Mazzara, very successful television producer. And, uh, and he talks about how, first of all, he wanted women in the writer's room. He, he, he produced The Shield, The Walking Dead, a number mm-hmm. of other shows. And he said it was hard to get. He'd go to agencies and say, bring, bring me women. And they would still send him white guys. So he had a demand to get some female writers in the room. But once he did, he found that they were failing. They were not getting their ideas into the scripts. And he said it took him too long to realize because he said, I'm so attuned to the male voice, to listening to them first. And he said he finally realized that what was happening was every time one of the women tried to present an idea, the male writers in the room would interrupt her. And so none of their ideas got through. So he created a rule, very simple, no interruptions. Whoever's pitching an idea cannot be interrupted. When they're done, you can tear the idea apart, as he says. You can make them cry. I don't care, um, he said. You know, But it's important to let those ideas flower and, and to, to be heard. And that change turned around everything for him. And you know, that's a very simple thing. I feel like anyone in a meeting should be empowered to say, hey, wait a second, Jean's been interrupted. I'd really like to hear her finish her thought, right? And there's a number of other simple steps that people can take. I want to get to them. But I want to just remind everybody before we do that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments because we're working together to encourage all women to be in the front seat when it comes to their careers, but also when it comes to their financial health. And that's because 
women are in the driver's seat in so many aspects of our lives, not just managing our careers, our families, and more. But when it comes to making decisions specifically about money, too many women are still delegating to someone else. One thing is really clear. When it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, knowing what you owe, what your goals are, and by having an annual financial checkup. And you can learn more about all of this at fidelity.com slash front seat. I'm talking with Joanne Lipman, the author of the new book, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and What Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. I think the technical term for what we were talking about before we went to that break is mansplaining, although <laughs> you've also called it bro-propriation and manterrupting. Um, yes. It's happened to me. I can't tell you how many times, and I'm pretty forceful in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens to all of us. Yes, what we were just referring to was manterrupting. Um, but the uh, appropriation is another one that happens all the time. And it actually, that is where the title of the book comes from, though the, it's a little bit of a double entendre because anyone who's watched The Office knows that it's also a dirty joke. But the title of the book, that's what she said, really is something every woman has experienced, which is you're in a meeting, you say something intelligent, and it's crickets. It's like no one has heard it. Mm -hmm. And then two minutes later, some man repeats what you just said. And, uh, and everybody suddenly says, Oh my gosh, Bob, you're a genius. What a great idea you had, Bob. And he gets the credit. And suddenly that idea is taken up by everyone. And meanwhile, the few women in the room are all scratching their heads saying, wait a second, that's what she just said. And, you know, so there are ways, by the way, to counteract that. How? That happens all the time. So there's a couple of, of strategies that people shared with me. Um, you know, one of them is something that actually the women in the Obama White House came up with uh, called amplification. And, um, you know, the women in Obama had more women than any president before or since. Um, on, in his staff, but they were still in the minority and they still felt like they were getting bulldozed by the men. And so they came up with sort of a pact where uh, if one of them said something, another one would repeat what she said and give her credit, which does two things. You know, one is it makes sure that there, it's not crickets, that her idea doesn't die. Mm -hmm. And secondly, she gets the credit for it, not Bob a couple of minutes later. A similar one, and this came also, um, these women didn't know about this research, but uh, what they were doing is playing off actually uh, a very real phenomenon that researchers have documented, which is that women are um, not effective, unfortunately, in advocating for themselves. If a woman says, you know, basically talks about her own accomplishments and a man with exactly the same accomplishments talks about his the woman will be seen as abrasive, brash, boastful, unlikable. The man will be seen as likable and a leader. Right. Hillary Clinton talked about this extensively in her book. When she was advocating for the country as Secretary of State, it was great. When she was yep. running for herself, not so much. Exactly. And the research shows that women who advocate on behalf of others are actually more successful at doing so than men are. So if you ask a man and a woman, as some researchers have done this, um, you ask a man and a woman to negotiate a salary on behalf of someone else, 
the woman will actually negotiate a higher salary um, than the man will. If you ask them to each negotiate on behalf of themselves, the man will negotiate a far higher salary for himself. The woman will actually even ask for less, take less, uh, value herself less. But also, um, even if she asks for more, she won't get it. Um, but because women are good at advocating on behalf of others, some women um, at a consulting firm actually shared with me a strategy that they call brag buddies, which is I tell you my accomplishments, you tell me yours, and then each of us goes and brags about the other to the boss. And uh, they have found that that is an effective way to get their message across. Does it help them not only get their message across, but get paid more? Because here's the problem with the wage gap specifically, which I, I know you know, we've, you've done all this work on it. If we can't negotiate for ourselves for more money, how are we ever going to get it? Right. So one of the issues, you know, we, we are told all the time we need to be paid for, uh, you know, what we are worth. We need to demand to be paid what we're worth. My research suggests that in many cases, we actually don't know what we are worth. Um, one of the most interesting studies that I ran across in um, in writing That's What She Said involved first graders and Hershey Kisses. First graders are asked to do a task, and then they're asked to pay themselves in Hershey Kisses. At six years old, the boys pay themselves with more Hershey Kisses than the girls do. And you repeat that experiment um, with middle schoolers and high schoolers the, with money, and the boys will pay themselves as much as 78% more than the girls pay themselves. So right from the start, from childhood, you know, girls are sort of bred and value themselves less. And so that translates directly into this wage gap in the workplace. We are in a fortunate position now that we have not been in before. And that is, there is so much more data available now. Yeah. So you can go to a salary.com, glassdoor.com. You can, you know, there's much more information. You can arm yourself with data to understand what you should be paid. There's also the research that I cite in, that's what she said, um, is very useful research that I actually talked about it at a, um, at a panel discussion while I was working on the book. And I heard the next day from a young woman in the audience that she had gone that day, gotten her performance review, which was glowing and gotten like the puniest of puny raises. And she simply cited the research and said, you know, about how men are four times more likely to ask for a raise. When women do ask for a raise, they get 30% less than men do. And just citing that sort of research, her employers actually on the spot said, you know what, you're right, we really should be giving you a larger raise. And they did. So, you know, the data actually can help us to get things to a more equal place. But the onus is also on the employer. And as somebody who's hired a lot of people and, you know, run large staffs, I, as I was writing the book, changed the way I manage. I'd always been a great advocate for the people who worked on my teams, which I realized was not special to me. It was just because I'm female. But what I started to do is I realized that it wasn't enough to say, hey, you know, Susan is doing a great job and she needs a raise. What I needed to do was to line up my team members um, and look at them versus each other, not just versus themselves, to make sure that um, they were being paid equitably. Because what happens is, Women who are, you know, being historically underpaid, they move jobs 
And uh, you can hire a man and a woman at the same position and the woman will come in at a lower rate. Mm -hmm. And so so it continues. So you need to, um, as one executive told me, you need to pay it forward. You need to equalize them when they arrive in your news, in your in your organization. So I really did change the way that that I manage in a, in a way that I hope, you know, was trying to even the playing field. Well, and I've heard that from men that I've worked with in the past, specifically one man who's pretty senior at a major investment bank. And I had lunch with him and he was very proud of the fact that he has worked really hard and is closing the salary gap on his team. But he went about it in exactly the kind of way that you're talking about. Very, not just straightforward, but looking at the numbers and saying, these are the jobs, these are the people who are doing the jobs, these are equal jobs, and they will get equal money no matter who's doing them. I want to wrap up just by coming back to unconscious bias. We started with that. And and you make the point that we all have it, and we have to understand our own biases in order to be an important part of this entire process. So how do we get to our own biases? Right. So you actually can test your own unconscious bias. There's a project implicit.net that you can go to. That's also on my website, joannelipman.com. You can find this um, test. And I took the test for working women. You can take it for a variety of underrepresented groups. I took the test for working women and I came out as moderately biased against working women. So, um, you know, once you're, which was horrifying, I have to say, um, but it did make me aware. And I took unconscious bias training with Facebook employees at Facebook. And you do sort of realize these small everyday instances where that comes out. So, for example, right after I took the training, I was meeting with a man and a woman who I'd been emailing with and they worked for the same company. I did not know who was senior and who was junior. And yet, when I met them in person, I immediately went to shake the man's hand with no information other than that he was a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to take the test as well. I'm a little bit afraid of what it shows up, but I will report back. Joanne, congratulations on the book. We need it. And um, I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great conversation. Kelly has joined me in the studio and, you know, sometimes you start a conversation and you leave it hanging and then (laughs) you can't go on from there. So we do have your questions because we've got a very full mailbag, which is great. But Kelly went to the dog show. I did. And bought a ticket on Craigslist that was a fake. What happened? So we can just start with a lesson that I just learned this week. If you're buying tickets to an event, be it a concert, a sporting event, the dog show, the Westminster dog show, don't buy them off of Craigslist. Go through StubHub or wherever the tickets were verified. But yes, my friend Chloe and I bought fake dog show tickets off of Craigslist. They did not scan at the door, but there were people who felt really bad for us and gave extra general admissions tickets to get in. 
And we eventually found ourselves on the floor with the very, like, fancy-dressed people mm-hmm. watching the dogs. What do you wear to a dog show? Well, we were underdressed. People were in ball gowns. No. It's black tie. Yeah, there's a section where they are black tie. Chloe and I came from work, so we had our blazers, and we looked fine, but we were severely underdressed. That's amazing. Yes. You know, I've had that happen. I don't even know if you remember, really? but yeah, when I was trying to get my children, because I had seen Hamilton twice. I know our entire audience is now jealous, but I had seen it twice with Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I really wanted my kids to see it before the original cast left. And so I had purchased tickets for them on StubHub, and I got a very quick email from StubHub that the tickets that I had purchased, they discovered were fakes. And they replaced them with actually slightly better tickets for the same amount of money. So, yeah, you got to be very careful. There were some red flags, like, you know, only paying in cash and meeting at a McDonald's. Oh, have I taught you nothing? (laughs) I know. It wasn't me. I'm sorry, Chloe, but it was Chloe who did this. I know, but I was, yeah, I participated. I should have, oh, I should have um, seen the red flags with her, but no, I just, I want everyone to know to not buy your dog show tickets in the years to come off of Craigslist. Okay. Yes. All right. Lesson learned. What, <laughs> what else do we have? Our first question is from Stephanie. She writes, I love your podcast and the perspective it brings to women in money. I am surprised, however, at how little the topic of healthcare costs come up with respect to building a budget. I'm a recent immigrant to the U.S. from Canada, and I'm struggling with the new responsibility of juggling HSAs, co-pays, and choosing between PPOs and HMOs. It seems like my healthcare costs vary greatly month to month. Can you offer some advice on how to save for unexpected costs and the best way to plan for the future? I am currently a healthy 40-year-old, and I have a PPO through my employer. Thank you. Sure. And you know what? I'm surprised at how little it comes up to it. We should probably do another mm-hmm. show or two devoted to the whole topic of health care in the near future. So we'll put that on our list. But for now, I think the best way to plan for health care expenses is to look backward. And you can't just look backward at the last month. you got to look back at the last year to see what your costs were basically in aggregate. So look at what you paid for prescriptions, look at what you paid for doctor's visits, look at what you paid for tests, add it all up and assume that unless you had some sort of outlying major expense, the type that your health insurance is going to kick in to cover, those are going to be your out-of-pocket costs. You're never going to know which months they're going to hit in, but they will hit eventually at some point during the year. And so that's a good sum to aim to have in reserve. An HSA, if you have one, is a great place to keep those reserves because it allows you to basically save 25% off the cost of any healthcare expense because you're paying for it with pre-tax money. But a flexible spending account, if your employer offers one, is a good place for it. And by the way, so is your emergency cushion. I mean, we've talked a lot about the $2,000 emergency cushion that's the starter emergency cushion. It's specifically for things like this. And we'll do one more from Wendy. Okay. Love your book, Age Proof, and love your podcast. My question, can I save in a Roth IRA and also consider it my emergency savings? I'm 61. I'm good at saving through my employer's 401k, but not so good on my own. I will probably work at least five more years. I have no emergency savings account and thought perhaps I could combine the two. Ah, you could because you're 61. 
Um, for most people, you know, a Roth is flexible. A Roth is more flexible than a traditional IRA because you can get the money that you put into it, the contributions back at any time, even though you can't get the proceeds. And that's because you already paid taxes on this money. I would prefer to see your emergency savings in an account specifically for emergencies. I'm a big believer. I think you know this, Kelly, but a lot of our listeners do too, in mental accounting. And that means that long-term money that you perhaps want to invest goes in a long-term account like a Roth IRA. Short-term money goes in a bank account and emergency savings are money that you could access at any time. So I'd prefer to see you divide and conquer because that's just how I'm more comfortable drawing the lines. You know, a 61-year-old, you're not going to face any penalties even for taking out the earnings on your money. But if it's for emergencies, you're not going to want to be investing it for the long term anyway. Great. Thank you, Jean. And thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you, guys. Keep them coming. Oh, and by the way, check out our new website. Ooh, Kelly nice. did an amazing transformation of jeanchatsky.com. All you, Kel. Thank I mean, you. she was sweating the details on this one. And um, yeah, check it out. Let us know what you think. I'd love that. And there's, again, the question box on the podcast page, the brand new podcast page. And I would love to hear how it works for you. If you'd like to see something else on the page that isn't there, please let us know. Thank you, Kelly. And in this week's Thrive segment, we are talking about Equifax again, five months after Equifax said that a breach compromised the personal information of 145 million consumers, we were talking about names and social security numbers and dates of birth and addresses, it turns out that the situation is even worse than we thought. More information might have been vulnerable to the thieves. Tax ID numbers, driver's license information, email addresses, they all may be accessed as well. So if you haven't frozen your credit reports at all three major bureaus yet, I really want you to do it right now. In fact, I want you to do it as soon as you're done listening to this show. We made a step-by-step guide for this. We will link to it on the brand new jeanchatsky.com. And one more thing, Equifax recently launched a service called Lock and Alert, which it says is free for life and available to anyone over 18. Now, this is a credit lock. It's different. It's not as strong as a credit freeze. On the plus side, it is typically straightforward. It does offer similar security to a freeze, and it's free. When you freeze your credit, you're going to pay typically 5 to $10 anytime you place a freeze and another 5 to $10 when you lift it. Although Equifax, because of its bad deeds, is offering free credit freezes through June 30th of this year. The downside of this service is that the lock allows Equifax to share your data for marketing services like financial companies that might want to sell you something. It also offers fewer consumer protections than a credit freeze. Case in point on this, In many states, you can go to court if something goes wrong under a freeze, but under the provisions of the Equifax lock and alert, you disclaim all liability. Finally, know that if you lock or freeze your report with Equifax, you still need to instate a lock or a freeze 
individually at the other big bureaus. Those would be Experian and TransUnion if you want your credit reports safer across the board. A credit lock is generally only a better idea, in my opinion, if you're not willing to pay for a freeze. And it's important to always read the fine print. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Joanne Lippman for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Trek Drive. Our show comes to you through PRX. And we record this podcast out of the lovely CDM Sound Studios. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest. We'll talk soon.